Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. And I want to begin with a phrase that you've probably heard thousands of times. It's this, God loves you. God loves you. My family, we drive to Austin on a regular basis. Uh, through Columbus, we go down 71 to see my side of the family. And there's a sign on the side of the road that says, God loves you, praise him. Have you all seen that sign on the way to Austin? God loves you, praise him. And I kind of wonder what people think of when they read that sign. And I'm just curious, what do you think of when you hear that God loves you? To some, it may conjure thoughts of a detached benevolence of a distant God. And I remember in college being trained in the four spiritual laws by Campus Crusade for Christ. And we were going to go out and we were going to share our faith. And they would give us these little tracks and they would train us. And the first law was this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You've probably heard that before. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And as a college student um, who was very concerned about the plan for my life, um, I kind of skipped over the God loves you part and my mind would go straight to the like, what's he gonna do to me? Like, wh where is he gonna send me? Am I, am I gonna Africa or like, wh like where, what, you know, wh where is he gonna take me? This, this God, like, what's he gonna do if I give my life to him, right? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What does it even mean that God loves you? I've met plenty of skeptical, hurting people who have said something like, if God is love, then how could he have let this happen to me? Or those who are more justice-minded have asked, if God is loving, how could he let that happen to them? For the more social conscious, that they would say, if he's loving, how could he condemn them or me? And the very questions paint God as this hardened, detached, uncaring, and unfeeling being. And is that love? Is that what that means? God loves you. Meanwhile, we throw the word love around pretty flippantly, don't we? Um, we love burritos, and we love our dog, and we love our favorite teams. There's a, apparently there's some kind of game going on today. I don't know if you've heard about it. Super Bowl Sunday, um, right? We, we have favorite, I don't know if anyone, is anyone actually rooting for a team this year? No one? No, see, yeah. You guys are about as excited about it as I am. Um, so we, we, we love that, but we also, we, we love God and we, we love our children. And, and is that the same thing? You know, of course not. It's, it's not the same thing. I love you could be a conversation clue that I'm about to hang up the phone, right? You know, you, you married people at the end, love you. It's like, okay, we're, we're hanging up now, right? L love you. Or it could be a very um, vulnerable admission. I love you. It's kind of like the word awesome. 99% of the things that we say are awesome are not awesome, right? 
But we're just so used to using the word awesome that when someone says, hey, I'll be there in five minutes, you say awesome, right? That's not awesome. But we just don't know what else to say. And so we, we use the word. And then when we truly see something awesome and we say the word awesome, everyone's like, oh, that's a, that's a cheap word, you know? Like, don't you have something better to say than awesome? And I kind of think that love is the same way. It's this love, this kind of love that God is and that he gives and that he reveals is awesome. And yet at the same time, you know, those two words, love and awesome, are used so flippantly that it, it kind of doesn't quite get at the real heart or the real meaning or what we're trying to express. God loves you is the heart of the gospel. It's essential because according to Jesus, who quotes the Old Testament, our sole reason for existence is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, strength, everything we have, everything we are. He says the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus himself would embody this love and teach about it. And it was so compelling that notorious sinners and tax collectors and all the, the kind of the cast-offs and misfits of his day were drawn to him. They were drawn to this love of Jesus the heart of the gospel would find its apex in the sacrificial death of Jesus to pay for my sin and your sin, for undeserving and rebellious people like us. And Paul says that we were enemies while he did this. And as John 3.16 says, for God so loved that he gave his only son. God loves you. Yet how is it that all those people who are drawn to Jesus aren't drawn to Jesus' church. Is the massive increase in religious nuns, meaning those who say they have no religious affiliation, is that due to disagreements about doctrine or worldview or sexual ethics? Why are they leaving the church? And in my sense is it's less about doctrine and it's probably more about dysfunction. Because every, almost every Christian I meet has a story that they come with of church hurt, church drama, church scandal. And I just think that there's something amiss, something has gone wrong in the church and the people that used to be drawn to Jesus aren't drawn to his church anymore. And for lots of people, it's like, we're, we're cool with Jesus. We're just having problems with the church. And for those who don't have a story like that, there are many who drift away from church because it just kind of becomes irrelevant somewhere along the way. And it was more about sermons or services and routines than it was about the love of God binding a people together. And all of these things have one thing in common, whether it be a scandal or a drama or a hurt or just irrelevance, is that somewhere along the way, there was a failure of love. There was a failure to love God with everything or, or to love one another like God loves us. And so 
my question today is how can we find our way back to one another? How can we find our way back to one another? We, we have this value that we believe that we're called to grow in community, that the church should be the thing that the, the world that's, by the way, drowning in loneliness is looking to for a vision of what could a healthy, functional relationship with other people look like. And yet we've, we've done such a poor job of displaying that. And so I want us to look at... Um, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. I didn't think about Valentine's Day when I was planning this, but hey, it fits, okay? Tomorrow's Valentine's Day. And I want to talk about gospel relationships, gospel relationships. So not, not the romantic kind of Valentine thing that you're probably going to do this week. Hopefully you have a Valentine that you can send them something. I don't know. But gospel relationships, and I believe that we need to be captivated with a clear, compelling vision of gospel relationships. A, a gospel relationship is one that is uniquely formed and shaped more by the good news and love of Jesus than by any other factor. It's, it's when my relationship with you has nothing to do with all of our similarities or differences, but it's like there's something deeper going on that motivates me to care about you. And it's rooted in Jesus. And the chorus of the, new, of the Old Testament and the New Testament calls God's people to unique, loving relationships with one another. I mean, pick any letter in the New Testament and you're going to find a call, a plea to love one another, bear with one another, keep the bond of the Spirit in unity. It's just like over and over again, they're, they're just ringing the same bell. The word renaissance, our church name, simply means rebirth, renewal, or revival. And I believe that the church is in desperate need for a renewal of godly love. Our, our ministry philosophy, we're built on house churches, small groups that are called house churches. And our whole philosophy is relationships. It's how we do church. And if we don't do relationships well, guess what? <laughs> we're in trouble. And we follow the same pattern of church after church, you know, throughout history when there was a failure of love. And I believe we're going to need biblical precision to see our own dysfunction for what it is. To see our, our, the ways that each one of us fails to love one another. Like we, we need some light to shine on that so that we can see it for what it is and that we can find good in Christ-honoring ways back to one another. So if you have a copy of uh, scripture, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to look at the famous love chapter. And just so you know, the Apostle Paul is writing to a dysfunctional church. I mean, they were all divided. They have their favorite Christian leaders that they like to talk about. They um, are, he says that their gatherings are doing more harm than good. Well, that's encouraging, right, for a church. Hey, try not gathering for a little while because when you do, it's terrible. It's basically what he tells them because there's this elitism and people are being left out and some people are getting drunk and some people are going like hungry and it's just, it's just a total mess. There's sexual immorality. I mean, it is absolutely falling off the rails. And he writes this letter to them 
uh, to this church at Corinth, and instead of um, saying, you know, shut it down, he actually tells them to dial up love in their church, to dial up love. So let's read this, 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1. He says, if I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to, if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then face to face. Now I know in part but, when, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. And this is such a beautiful and descriptive vision of love and relationships. And I just want to look at the first section, and then I want to talk about the last section, then I want to camp out on that middle part kind of as the bulk of our time together. But in that first section, he's just taught them about spiritual gifts, okay? So he's done a whole teaching to them. This was a church that was um, charismatic to the extreme, Okay. And interestingly, Paul doesn't say, hey, let's just like put the brakes on that thing. Rather, he, he says, you just need love. And he's going to go on to say in the next chapter that they should earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Like he's like, this is good. This is good. But if, if you don't have love, it's, it's nothing. He talks about, and this is a whole sidebar of tongues of men and angels. And I know that's a whole controversial topic for many Christians, but it would be biblically irresponsible to say that angelic tongues are not a thing. Because Paul says they are right here. I speak in the tongue of men or angels. And, and he's giving this instruction on gifts. And then he brings it into the context of healthy relationships. And this is the first thing I want us to understand. Doing the things of God without the love of God gets us nowhere. Doing the things of God without the love of God gets us nowhere. And this, unfortunately, is that story that we've heard so many times. Great church. Great mission. I, I, I loved the pastor, but... Right? And just roll back church history. Why are Catholics and Protestants at war with each other? 
Something was lost along the way. They, they were doing the things of God without the love of God, and it literally results in nothing. And, and that's what he says in the passage. He talks about, you know, if I do speak in these tongues but do not have love, it means nothing. It means nothing. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. So it means nothing, and I am nothing. And look, if I could be the most sacrificial, amazing person that you've ever met in your life, and I would just you know, give away everything, and, and I'd just give away my body to be burned, right, just for the sake of the gospel. I mean, if I was just Mr. Sacrificial but don't have love, he says, I gain nothing. So I, it means nothing. I, I am nothing and I gain nothing if I'm doing God's stuff without God's love. I, I found a quote from a, an old saint, Josiah Gregory. He says, people of little religion are always noisy. He who has not the love of God and man filling his heart is like an empty wagon coming violently down a hill. It makes a great noise because there's nothing in it. <laughs> He's saying, look, a lot of times the, the Christians that have the loudest stuff, it's like, it, and, and honestly, there's, there's just love is missing in them. Now, you know that there are multiple kinds of love that are referred to in scripture and in the Greek language that this was originally written in. And there's the eros kind of love, which was the romantic kind that we're going to celebrate on Valentine's Day. Okay, it's not a bad thing. Storge would be more of a love of things, right? You, you love your dog and you love your coffee, right? It's storge. Then there's phileo, which would be a brotherly love. It was beautiful, brotherly, good kind of love. And then there was... Um, there was the uh, sacrificial, self-giving love that he's talking about, which is agape. And you've heard that term before, agape love. And this kind of love is a self-giving love. It, it's, it's, it can love the unlovable even when it's rejected. It's, it's, that's the kind of love that he's talking about. And we, we often call this a God kind of love. It's a God kind of love. Um, Alan Redpath says that our word agony actually comes from the same root word as agape. And it's almost to say that it's an actual absorption of our being in one great passion. I mean, this is like a deep passion absorbing kind of love in in. in this was interesting to me that according to scripture, you can agape sin and you can agape the world. Like it uses this word differently, not just about God's love, but this absorbing passion in a person. But that's the word that he used to describe this kind of love, this love that is sacrificial and absorbing. It's, it's deep kind of love of love. And clearly we are able to do God's stuff without God's love. I mean, that's what they were doing. And here's the thing. If we invest ourselves in a version of Christianity that's full of activity, but, but it's lacking in love for the Lord and love for one another, that market's going to crash. It's, we will gain nothing. It gets us nowhere. Second thing, 
is that God's love in us is the most important thing about us. It's the most important thing about us. You see that last section, verses 8 through 13, he says that love never ends, that all these prophecies and all these tongues and all this knowledge, like all that stuff has a shelf life. It's, it's temporary. But this, this um, love that never ends, he says it's the greatest thing. It's the greatest of this faith, hope, and love, right? And he puts this punctuation mark drawing our love beyond the bounds of this earthly life. It's greater than whatever circumstance that you are facing now or will face before you stand before God. This, this love has a line that just keeps going. And if you could draw a line for faith and a line for hope and a line for love over your life and just, and just picture that you know, stretching out over every day, every decade of your life, he's saying, look, that, that, um, that word never ends literally means it never drops away. Like the, the faith line will drop away because when you're face to face with God, it's like no faith needed. I can see you, right? And, and the hope line, it's going to drop away because when I am standing in the glory of God and there's no more sorrow and there's no more sickness and there's no more sadness and, and I'm full of, like, there's, there's nothing more to hope. It's like hope is my reality. It's, like, it's what I'm doing every moment of eternity. It's going to drop off. I don't need hope anymore. But this love, this love that he's calling them to, he's like, this, this, this will not stop. It's going to go on. It's the greatest. And it will last into eternity. He puts us into perspective. All these things are temporary. Have you ever considered that your relationship with God and your relationship with one another is the only thing that will really last beyond this life? really and, and I'm, I'm the same way like I, I just I get down and I'm like I've got my schedule and I've got my deadlines and I've got my work and it's like you know it's so easy to let the most important thing that will last for eternity to fall into the back burner of our lives so easy that if I neglect my love for Jesus and my love for you, that I'm neglecting something that will literally go forever. And I could invest my life fully into something that is temporary, that's never going to last. It's the most important thing about us. You know, Jesus did speak often of God's rewards. In fact, I would love to do a series on the rewardable life because it's so fascinating to me when he talks about um, our faithfulness, right? Or, or how we give our generosity or our good deeds during, done in secret or, or seeking God in the secret place and, or loving our enemies. And he says, your father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. And that's fascinating to me. That there's things that we do now that last into eternity that bring re rewards. But all of those are expressions of a deep love for Jesus and a love for one another. I found a quote. This was uh, a pastor that mentored me for the first 12 years of ministry. And here's what he says. He writes this in his book. To be loved by God is the highest relationship 
highest feet, in the highest position in life. Just let that sink in. That the love of God, that God loves you, is the highest position that you could ever hold in your life. I don't know what, what path you're on, what ladder you're climbing, but the highest position you could ever have, you've already got it. He says, what, what you are striving to become will be less than what you already are in Christ. Wow. It's the greatest thing about you. And I don't know if you're feeling the weight of this. Right? This, this need for love. It's, it's, it's the most important thing about us. It's going to last into eternity. It's, it's, the, um, it's the thing that if we do everything else, but we don't have this, it's like it, it, it's going to mean nothing. It's going to gain nothing. It's going to make no change. But what really grabbed me, and this is where I just want to camp out together, is that God's love in us is revealed relationally. Now, I'm a 90s Christian, okay? Just forgive me now, all right? I, I have some songs in me from the 90s, and I like to pull them out every now and because it's kind of funny, but one of the songs was by a band called DC Talk. Has anyone ever heard of DC Talk before? Yeah, we have a few, right? What will people say when they hear that I'm a Jesus? Anyways, go ahead. Um, they had a song called Love is a Verb. Love is a Verb, meaning that love is action. And, and what's interesting about the descriptive words that Paul uses is that these aren't feeling words, right? He, he doesn't go to the feeling side, but he doesn't go to the doing stuff for people side either. These are action words, but they're relational responses. And, and here's, here's why that grabbed me is that I, I sense that in our age, with our technology and our ability to live sort of autonomously, that it is easier and easier for us to have very, very few relationships. Very few. And the kind of love that he's talking about is only revealed in relationships, meaning there's, there's, there's no other place where this can be expressed. He um, describes God's love for us in the words. And we could read it that way of God's love is patient. God's love is kind. And it keeps no record of wrongs. And it, you're, it's, that's true. But Paul's not making that point here, is he? Paul's telling a church that's going off the rails. He's saying, look, no, no, this is what you're supposed to do. This is your love for one another. He's, he's, he's talking about our love. He's painting a picture. He's casting a vision, meaning that all those descriptive words that we probably have all failed at, we're on the hook for those things. And to disregard them is to dishonor Christ and to grieve the Holy Spirit and to do a world of damage to ourselves and to the people that are around us, the people that we love, and to do a whole world of damage to churches so that more people have the same story. Oh gosh, I was in a church and you would never believe what happened to me. Jesus himself said, I give you a new command. Love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This means that just Jesus and me, hey, I could live that. I got four hours of window time on the way to Dallas this week and back, and it was just Jesus and me, and it was sweet, okay? I like that. I could, I could fall into that ditch real fast. But what he's saying is that just Jesus in me is actually disobeying Jesus. I've given you this command. Here's how you're to love one another. As, as the Lord says about Adam, it's not good for the man to be alone. He calls us to one another. We have to find our way back to one another in gospel relationships, right? It's, it's the expression of God's love to us and in us and through us to one another. And that's just take a minute. I just want you to look at the words that Paul uses to describe these relationships. He says, two things that love is. It's patient and it's kind. It's patient and it's kind. That, that, that's the idea of long suffering. It endures without losing heart. It's, it's slow to anger. It's, it's hanging in there through the misfortunes and the troubles. It's this kind and benevolent love for others. And then he goes into eight things that love is not and does not. And, and I love that he's using the comparison contrast. He says, it doesn't envy, which by the way, that's like the most damaging of sins is envy. It's, it's where we see something that someone else has or possesses or something in them that we just want it so bad for ourselves that there's this sinful thing in us that's just like, I just want to take it, right? I think this is revealed so well in our social media, right? Do you resent when someone else is promoted or blessed publicly? When you see that social media post, do you prefer that someone else is promoted or recognized or blessed Right? I, I, I will have a really hard week. And pastors have hard weeks too. I don't know if you know that. I'll have a really hard week. And then one of my pastor friends will be like, best Sunday ever. 25,000 people received Jesus this week. And you're just like, bless them, Lord. And then inside you're like, ah. Right? Fighting the envy. He says it isn't boastful. And it, that word literally means to parade itself. It doesn't parade itself around, which means do you post something intentionally to make other people envious? Right? It doesn't want the spotlight, it doesn't need the limelight. It's not boastful. I, I've been fascinated. He mentioned the Wesley brothers, John Wesley, Charles Wesley. They started bands, which is a group of a small group of like three people, and they would just ask these questions to one another. The first question of their 22 questions was, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that, I, that I'm better than I really am? 
He says, this love isn't boastful. It isn't arrogant, literally meaning puffed up. It's, it's making yourself bigger than you really are. It's rooted in pride. He says, it's not rude, right? It's, 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 it's not this rudeness that doesn't care about other people and, and where they're coming from and their feelings. It's not, you know, offensive kind of stuff. It's not self-seeking. It's not out for itself, right? But it's, it reflects this Christ-like concern about other people. It's not irritable. Hello? Never struggled with that before. Easily provoked, hot-headed, quick-tempered, easily annoyed. It's not irritable. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It's, it's, it's not this unforgiving thing, always reminding people of their past failures and unable to let something go, right? It, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs to like just keep somebody in check, just remind them of like, oh, you remember that time when you did that thing and that really hurt me? Husbands, wives, ever do that? No, of course not. No, not us. We're good, Right? It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. There's a, a powerful truth that Jesus gives in Mark 6. He says, if you forgive other their offenses, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. Wow. It's like you've, he's like, you've totally missed what I've done for you. You're not born again if you've missed that and you cannot forgive someone else. I can't forgive you. It um, finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Literally, it takes no delight in anything that is, that is morally wrong or unjust, but it delights in the truth. And that word truth is like the things that are absolutely true in every circumstance, in every place, at every time. And there are things that are absolutely true at all times, in all places, in every circumstance. And it rejoices in these things. And it's, uh, I, I see this in my own heart. When, when you hear of the Christian pastor, leader, person who has the fall and it's public and something in you is like, oh, I always thought something was up with that guy. I always thought something about that girl, right? It's, it, and there's something in you that's taking a little bit of delight in something that's absolutely terrible and saddening. And, and I've just learned, like, whenever I hear that, the first thing I just do is grieve. Because by the grace of God, only by the grace of God, are any of us able to, to walk without stumbling like that? We can be gen genuinely saddened for them. I heard someone else say that Christians love to pedestal their leaders and then crucify them when they fail. That they'll eat their own. That's what the world says about us. This also means that when a person is lured into sin, we can't just be like, well, whatever works for you, praise the Lord. Oh, okay, you're into that? All right. Like we, we can't just capitulate to the culture and, and take the light in it but we can only rejoice in what is true. And then he ends this section with four massive things that love does, what it does. And here's what he says. 
it bears all things. And that word bear literally means to roof over. It's like this love is like this covering, this roof over other people. And it's like, I literally can, I can handle all of this. I can bear all things with you. It's to suffer, it's to cover, it's to hold in confidence. It's the opposite of a critical, fault-finding, or gossiping attitude. Charles Spurgeon said that, I know some who are not half so eager to publish the gospel as to publish slander. They love, stands, it says, love stands in the presence of a fault with a finger on her lips. Love stands in the presence of a fault with a finger on her lips. Literally, like, I'm, I'm not just going to be critical and fault-finding and just heap it on you. Like, I'm, I'm going to bear this with you. It believes all things. It's, it's believing the best in and for another person. You know, um, we are trained to be suspicious. You probably know that. Right, the, we had people buy a house across the street. Yesterday, I'm looking out my window like, what's up, right? Why? I don't know, because I've heard too many stories of terrible things, and I'm just trained to be suspicious. But he says that we believe all things. We, we're believing the best for one another. It's not a gotcha kind of love. It hopes all things. It hopes all things. It's, it's not a, a pessimistic or a fatalistic kind of love, but it's not naive either. It's desiring the best while believing that God is able to bring forth redemptive goodness out of whatever it is that we walk through. Right? No matter what it is. Somehow, at the end of this, we're going to say, God is faithful. God is good. Look what he's done. I don't know when. I don't know how but I hope all things, and it endures all things. Literally meaning, it remains, it perseveres. It's not gonna jump in and jump out, right? It's, it's not hasty, it's enduring. And there's one word in there that is repeated and it's just, it kind of, it's, it's just, it's massive. It's the word all. All things. And I don't know about you, I can bear some things. I can believe some things. I can hope some things. And I can endure some things. And the, here's the deal. We don't need to be born again and filled with the Spirit to do that. But Paul has pushed the line to all. This is what, this is what love looks like for you. And we just have to look at it and be like, really? All things? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is massive. Is that the kind of love that you have for others? Is, is that the, the, the list? As we read that, were you like, check, check, check? Yep, good to go. Probably not. Me neither. And friends, this, this bar seems too high. And, and I know um, the excuse that maybe I've used and maybe you've used is that when we see that list, you see that, but you're like, oh, but we're real here. We're real here. Because you can, you can look like this on Sunday, and you can look like that maybe for like an hour and a half on Wednesday night with your house church, 
But when you get in the car with your spouse or when you get behind closed doors in your home, like, is that still going on? Because I don't think we get a pass there. But you say, oh, no, we're, we're real here. We're real. And if real means rude, I have a problem with that. I don't think that's what the Lord wants. Real actually means vulnerable. It's to say, look, I feel really irritated right now, and I'm sorry. That's wrong of me. Would you please pray for me? I, forgive me. It's, that's real. But being rude is not real. So he, he raises the bar too high for us. And I fail at it. I, you probably do too. So the question is, how do we do it? And there's two things I want to close with. See, there's, there's two primary things that keep us from living this out and from obeying. And the first is that we're incapable. Meaning, I, I can't. I, I want to, I think, but I can't. I'm incapable. And the reality is that we all have brokenness that we've come from. I don't know your story, but I'm just going to guess that along the way, there's been some stuff that's been really hard and it's probably broken your heart in some way. It's broken your life, that you are broken, that you have lack in you. Like they're just people that should have done some things for you along the way didn't and you're just, you're missing some things. You have pain and wounds. You have a sin nature. You have sin in you. Hello? We all have selfishness. And, 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 and I just think that we all have an, an internal monologue going at all times. And here's what I mean. There's a demonic drip of thoughts that is opposite of what the word of God says about you, that God loves you, that he's with you, that he accepts you completely, that he's pleased with you, that he's delighted with you through, through he views you through Jesus Christ and not your sins, that he's, he's, he's canceled the written code that, that stood against us, right? And, and there's this whole other monologue going on in the back of our minds that just keeps us just, uh, I'm just, you know, whatever that thing is for you and you're just, you're just curled in on yourself. It's so this whole love for other people. It's like always being blockaded by this, whatever's going on in here. And, and Jesus said, I mean, as Jason said about Jesus, if the son has set you free, you're free indeed. And I'm, I'm just believing that if we will bring those things to the light and submit them to the Lord, that he can cut the cord of that monologue that goes on in our minds. We, we have incapacities. And the gospel will say to us in our incapacities that our only hope, friends, is that Jesus' love is that whole list for us. It's our only hope. And maybe we need to be like the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors who are just drawn into Jesus again and just like, oh, like I just need your love again. Could you meet me in, in my incapacities? And the second thing is that we're unwilling. We're, we could be incapable, but we could be unwilling. And, and that's when there's just bitterness that has grown in us. And, and we, we can identify more with our hurt and our past and our story than with Jesus. 
And there's a pride that sees our sins as small and our failures to love as small, but the failures of others as just massive and unforgivable and insurmountable. And the gospel will say to us that it was, it was our sin, it was my sin, your sin that pierced him. And he willingly bore it for you in love. He's lavished mercy in grace upon you. And no matter what has kept us from living it out, whether it's incapacities or unwillingness, Jesus calls us to confess our need for him, to turn to him, to believe in him, to drop our unloving attitudes and to receive his love for us, to find power through the Holy Spirit, to be warmed by grace again. And he calls us back to one another. We have to do it in community. We, we learn this. We, we, we learn in community. We grow in community. And let me close with this. Paul begins the next chapter with these two words. Pursue love. And it literally means to chase after it. Running after it. Pursue love. To reject this vision of gospel relationships is to dishonor Christ, to grieve the spirit, and to do incalculable harm to ourselves and to others. But to chase this together is to see the goodness of God and to taste and see how amazing he is. It's to find shalom. It's the wholeness and the healing. It's to grow in community. We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes but we can confess to one another and we can get back to it. So friends, may we go after gospel relationships that are uniquely formed and shaped more by the good news of Jesus and the love of Jesus than by any other factor. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.